Hello, and welcome to the Workplace Justice Podcast. This podcast helps to inform and empower you about your rights within the workplace. We cover topics and examples of various matters in employment law, including sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination, racial discrimination, how the courts define a hostile work environment, whistleblowing, and everything in between. Workplace Justice is brought to you by the New York City employment and civil rights law firm, Nassar Law Group. Here are your hosts, Mahir Nassar, Casey Wolnowski, and Jeffrey Rosenberg. Welcome to another episode of the Workplace Justice Podcast. Today, our special guest was named by Forbes twice as the anti-racism educator your company needs now. Her deep knowledge of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and anti-racism is informed by years of executive-level DEIA practice in consulting and advocacy and implementation. Her compelling content, presentations, and consulting approach are powered by more than 16 years of working in marketing, journalism, and communications, and DEIA for Fortune 500 and other large corporations. She has been invited to speak about her expertise by HubSpot, Linking Indie Women, Hive Indie, Indie Maven, Monster.com, the American Library Association, and the Public Library Association, among others. She has been featured for her expertise by the New York Times, twice by Forbes, and on HubSpot's podcast, The Growth Show. She is also a member of the MIT Technology Review Global Panel. Kim is a global workplace inclusion and equity fire starter and strategist, an inclusive branding and communications activator, an equity and entertainment and media champion, revolutionary leadership, keynote and vocalist, and the CEO and president of Kim Crowder Consulting LLC. Welcome to the Workplace Justice Podcast. Thank you for taking out the time today to speak with us. So, Kim, you say that you believe that authenticity is for white people. That word gets thrown out a lot within the workplace about being authentic. How do you feel or why do you believe that that term is really geared towards white people? Well, for a few reasons. One, we know that oftentimes people are penalized from embracing their entire culture in the workplace. We've seen that happen, uh, for instance, when we start to think about when Black people talk about or boast how great they are at their job, they actually get penalized. When in fact, that is very much so told as that's a benefit, right? You're supposed to do that so that you can move into leadership or that's what people in leadership do. But for certain groups, that's a benefit for other groups that it is not. But also we see this in the way that some groups and some cultures, particularly those cultures that have been historically ignored or excluded, don't have the same forms of support in the workplace. So I'll give you an example where at a perfect time, right? It's not Ramadan. How many workplaces are specifically thinking about what does Ramadan mean to our team members? And in that, what needs to happen? Are there things we need to change around? Are there ways that we need to consider how we work during this time period? Or what allowances are we offering those team members? And so that's what I mean about this idea of authenticity and who that is actually for in the workplace. So in some sense, when you talk about authenticity, you think it comes from the perspective of privilege and power. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? I do think it comes from that perspective of privilege and power. And I also think typically in our culture, particularly I'm thinking about Black culture or across cultures, because I have people who I love across cultures, is we don't necessarily use that word. It's not a, a it's not language that we walk around saying, are you being authentic? Are you? I mean, we don't just, we don't think about 
ourselves within our particular groups as being authentic or not, right? It's either you're being yourself or you're not. Are the, you know, we just, it's just that. And so this idea of authenticity, especially as it relates to the workplace, is a bit tied to uh, this. It's the same thing as people saying that empathy is a workplace superpower, right? If without an actual sense of bringing in systems that support and protect people when they are authentic, when they show up and need empathy, then it's all just language. Mm. And so to some extent, when we talk about being true to ourselves and being authentic, the way that they use that terminology, I guess to the extent that within the workplace, there's this culture of conformity, right? That there's a culture of conformity and compliance, that there is to some extent, for especially for minorities, those that are marginalized, we don't even use the word minority anymore, but use the language of saying marginalized communities. Do you feel as if that that whole, this idea of authenticity in light of this conformity culture of compliance is is just another example of them trying to, I don't know, like just market themselves as being something that they're really not catering to? I think that that this shows up in many ways. And I'll give you an example of what I mean around who is able to gain success in the workplace, right? So when we think about who's able to gain success, when we, there is a, a, a chart that we use often, a graph that we use often when we are working with leaders and executives in which it shows who moves up in workplaces most often. Now, as you can guess, it's typically white men. There are more white men who move to that CEO C-suite space. And then next is white women then it's men of color, and then it's women of color in that order. And so you see this large chunk of men of color, women of color in that entry-level state, and then it doesn't move a lot into that C-suite. And the reason why that is an important part of the conversation is because it speaks to, based on the standards of workplace, if promotion, if moving into the C-suite is a, a measurement or a mark of success, it shows you who gets to do that more often. And what we also see is it's not only even when we start to think about, you know, identities, even when we start to think about characteristics, right? Who is more outspoken? Who is able to spend more time at the workplace? Who is not introverted? And so when we start to look at that, even personalities, even personal characteristics can also create this barrier in folks' abilities. But we also know that some of those very characteristics are indicative to different cultures. So it's not always just about an individual person. Culturally, someone can have characteristics based on their culture. And so often, especially in westernized cultures or westernized workplaces, we are often working with folks who are not on the soil of the country that we're in, U.S. soil, soil in the U.K., right? We're working with other groups. And what we may not be taking into consideration largely is the impact of what it means to be an immigrant in that country, but also what does it mean for someone to be working remotely and trying to figure out how to actively be involved in a workplace that they have not even lived in and they are not familiar with that culture at all. And that we have not often, this is one of the things that we talk about our executives and leaders, that it, the onus is on us to figure out how do we allow room for success for other people who may not necessarily fit what is inherently, right, called leadership. That makes total sense. With respect to like, when you talk about 
the C-suite, and we talk about how certain people are mistreated. What do you feel with respect to the C-suite and their understanding of creating a culture of accountability? Yeah, you know, that is a an interesting question. And the reason why it's interesting is because we just have not had a lot of, we have not normalized the idea of, of creating accountability at that level of leadership. We just haven't. Uh, it has been something that I think people have asked for or looked for, but it has not necessarily shown up. And here's why it's so important is because when we start to look at accountability and, you know, I'll give you an example. We have a case study that I talk about often where we worked with a a C-suite at a workplace and our team did what we call a workplace health and culture assessment. This is massive, right? It involves everything from looking at the quantitative and qualitative data. We're talking about exit interviews. We're looking at promotion rates, all sorts of things across different backgrounds and identities. Then we take that information and we feed it back to the organizations and we specifically center those who have been historically excluded, who have not necessarily been focused on the most, right? So we disaggregate that data so that that data doesn't show up and go, well, most people are happy here. It's not based on the numbers, based on rate. One of what we saw was that the rate of turnover for Black team members was 101% a year. 101%, right? So for every team member they were bringing in, that year, another team member was leaving who was Black. We also saw above 75% for uh, Latina, Latino, Latina. And then as it went down, we saw those large numbers for other groups as well. And so in looking at that, and we say, okay, based on these numbers, what we find is that you're losing total for your turnover rates about $9 million a year. That's a low estimate is what we share with them. And then based on that, more than half, even though these groups make up less than half of the organization, more than half of that number is because of folks from historically ignored racial backgrounds. And so the reason that accountability is so important is because when we bring those numbers back and we say, hey, let's take a look at these numbers, that's it is giving us some basic information that something is not quite right here. Something is off. These rates don't quite look right. What happens is, is what would feel natural is that this is a smart decision, business decision to focus on, right? This is business 101. We see this major glaring issue here. It's time to focus and do some work. When in fact, what we find is that beliefs from those groups can outweigh the actual critical thinking of what we're looking at. And so then it is, well, how can, you know, start to ask questions. How can we manipulate the numbers to make it look like X, Y, Z? Can we take out this? Can we start looking at this? So then it, it, the question is, well, so they, they see it, they see yeah, it. Right. But then so what, are the, what do you believe are the underlying beliefs that are like, it's the implicit biases, the, the preferences? Yeah, I think some of it is that. I think also it's, it's some of it is, um, it's been working. Why would we change? Right. We're doing fine. So why would we change? Like we're hearing some of that. Well, here's why you want to change. Because what we know is that social media is the new accountability partner. And that means that on social media, anyone can tell their story at any given moment, right? Whether that's Indeed.com, whether that's on Twitter, they can do it anonymously. You've seen it on LinkedIn where people are coming out and saying, I've worked with this organization. I'm a member of this organization. Here's how I notice that people are being treated. And so this is why organizations want to center this conversation. 
is because not only you are you risking your brand and your reputation, but also we're talking about people who are willing to work for you. And on top of that discrimination claims, you can talk about that more on, on that compliance level than I can. But when we start to look at all of the risks, this is an easy business decision that we should indeed be looking to make workplaces more equitable. Agreed. So when it comes down to equity, what do you see as equity for the marginalized communities, people of color? Yeah, you know what? I'm going to say this is that (laughs) this is an interesting question. And I'm going to tell you why that question is so interesting for, for all the reasons you might already be thinking about or know, is that when we start to talk about what equity is, when capitalism is attached to people's ability to make a living wage, to be able to house themselves, to be able to have water to drink, then are we already shifting the conversation about what equity is, right? And I say that up against language where we use things like pay parity and pay equity and that sort of thing, that I think equity has become contextualized based on the situation. So if we t- we're talking about the baseline of capitalism, is capitalism equitable? We know the answer is no, right? That capitalism is built on, as Aiko Bethia likes to say, on toxic productivity. It is built on that. So the question is, is can you have equity in the workplace if it is based on that? I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure that that can be the case. What I do know is that we can make workplace conditions better for people. What I do know is that we can certainly make sure that people are not being overworked and not walking into workplaces where every day they wake up, they hate going. We, I do know that we can create opportunities and space for people to be paid what they're worth and what they should be, and that that should not be based upon their identities and in the ways that they're being valued less based on that. And so can I openly and honestly say that a workplaces or that capitalism can provide equity? I cannot with confidence say that. But what I can say is that we can put people first based on the current system that we have. That's it's beautiful. Thank you. Can you talk a little bit about the concept of the colonial mindset that somewhat permeates through a lot of our systems? Can you talk a little bit about how you feel colonialism culture kind of plays into people's experiences and the systems that exist? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because many of us folks who are of the global majority have this thing with time, <laughs> Right. Um, and I'm going to, you know, play around with this a little bit, but let's talk about how many weddings you've been to that are a part of your specific culture. How often do those parties or wedding actually start like on the dot on time when they're supposed to start? <laughs> yeah. no, like never, start never, like never, never. And sometimes yeah. it's hours. And so you end up doing something else. You figure something else or you just know that's what it is. And so you stay home till it's time. And so even if we're just talking about this one thing, right, we're talking about just time and the differences of how different cultures value time. So much of what we find in workplaces is based on time. It's based on deliverables. It's based on deadlines. It's based on how quickly things can be done and completed. It's also based on that time ruling over how much you get with your family and what you get outside of the workplace. And so that is just one way where we see these major cultural differences have to shift once people show up in the workplace. And that can be a challenge. Like, let's just be honest about that. That can be a challenge. And even the understanding and the reasoning at its core, why does this need to be done immediately? Because it's not necessarily do or die. And so again, you're always dealing with these different, you could be dealing with these different mind frames, these different concepts around what's important and what isn't. 
and what's valuable and what isn't. And when we start to look at the tenets of colonialism, the tenets of white supremacy, we see things like uh, produce more. We see things like, you know, written word is that is the defining factor, right? It has to be written. Uh, We see things like as in time and how quickly things have to be done. And so that's what I mean by having these differences. But what we do know is that if you don't follow the rules of colonialism, that your desire, if your desire is quote unquote success as you define it, typically you have to yield to that in order to make it happen. Wow. Very powerful stuff. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about your company, your consulting firm. What does Kim Crowder provide as services to people that search out for your company? Yeah, my team and I work with organizations, particularly working with those executives and leaders who want to create inclusive, more equitable work environments, who are people first. That is the goal. Oftentimes we find executives don't, maybe don't know quite where to start, are worried about making a mistake and not quite knowing what to say and how to frame that. And so we help come in, walk them through their own so that we can create critical thinking, how to build strategy to think about that, but first give them the skill set and the foundations to do it. That could mean history, helping them understand who is in their organization culturally. It could mean that workplace health assessment where we're looking at so that they have some base points around their own internal data around this. And often that means redefining the importance of qualitative data as well. And then we we do some things around uh, inclusive marketing, branding, and communications. My background is actually in marketing communications. And so what we find is that it's inside out work, right? What you do internally at some point, your values are going to show up externally, whether you live those out or whether there's something else. And we're seeing that happen over and over as organizations end up in media crises. And so what we want to do for those team members, for those leaders who say, I actually want this, we want to provide them with with what is necessary in order to put their people first and make that happen. Awesome. That's wonderful. How do you feel about all the different programs? I've been seeing a lot of posts on LinkedIn uh, from a lot of DEI practitioners that have been overly burnt out, right? There's been a lot of talk about DEI practitioners being burnt out, very overwhelmed, feeling very powerless in what seems to be a very difficult position to be in, to say the least. How do you see this, these programs in, in the context of what actually exists and what is aspired by having these programs and companies? For one, I think that's a really fair assessment. The understanding of why people are tired or burned out is very real. It is something I have experienced. I imagine you have also experienced a version of, of that. Um, and it's perpetual. It is not something that you experience for a period of time, though, you know, you may feel more hopeful in one moment or something else in another. And so I want to ground, I want to leave a grounding point that I get that. I also think that it is always important that we create liberation outside of the workplace, whatever that looks like in our communities with the people we love, across different cultures, across different backgrounds. And the reason why is in my lifetime, I am not going to see equity. I hate to say that out loud, but the likelihood that I'm going to see equity in my lifetime is, is very lean. And so as part of that, I have to find ways that feel liberating to me. And I have to dedicate myself to that part of myself and also realize that despite what we've been tasked with to change a whole system by ourselves as individuals, despite that we are often carrying our own cultures 
and race and identities. That's what we feel like we're carrying that on our backs. It's also sometimes what the expectation is that we really work to have boundaries and divorce ourselves from the idea that we are supposed to save everyone and that we can save everyone. And so I would just say this, I am a fan of, if you feel like you have other skill sets, if at any point you say, you know what, I've done what I'm willing to do and I'm, I want to exit this, that people feel free, free yourselves or think about what's the work you want to do. Find that work. If you say, you know what, I only want to focus on women. I only want to focus on women of color. I only want to do X, Y, Z. I want to work with kids, whatever that is. Find your lane and be really okay with that. But also, I think, and also, I want to say, and, and also, we can be selective about where we're willing to add that kind of value because this work is value. And so being specific about the workplace environments that we want to provide this type of value in, I think is uh, really important. And I do really understand deeply this pain point of, I feel desirous about this work. I also feel like I'm exhausted from this very work that my people did not create. Right. Yeah. How do you feel about the companies that are out there with respect to how what they're doing with anti-racism trainings? Do you feel like there's enough being done to cater to more uh, anti-racism within these institutions? No, you know, I think anti-racism is an interesting thing. And the reason why, particularly in the United States, it is interesting is because as a society, we have not, until Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, came out, we really didn't have the, one, I think the knowledge but also the framework to talk about the fact that we do have caste systems in this country. And so when we talk about anti-racism, we can't talk about it and divorce it from anti-Blackness. We can't do it. Oh, we can, but it's, then it's not anti-racism work. It's because when we look at societally who is impacted the most at any level, whether we're talking about healthcare, whether we're talking about wealth, and we cannot talk about anti-Native and Indigenous, those are the groups that are usually impacted at the highest level. And we also find all of that mixed in with when we deal with different uh, racial groups, that anti-Blackness can even still show up in racial groups who then themselves have experienced discrimination and racism. And so do I think workplaces are doing enough? Absolutely not. I think just, just that baseline framework of saying, do we have caste systems in this workplace? Probably. Even just that work at that level, um, we're not necessarily talking about that. The training is great, but without the actual working and the actual action and taking a look at systems, then it's entertainment. It's education, right? It's inter intercation. What do you call it? It's, you know how people say entertainment and education. They mix the word together. Yeah. But it's basically It's basically that. It's people learning, yeah. which I don't, I don't necessarily disagree that we should be learning. I think that that is an important piece of it. It's just not the end of it. You said something on LinkedIn that really struck strongly with me. And to many extents, it kind of made me reflect on my efforts of learning. And that was that it's really important for people to see the different perspectives from the individual's lens. I don't know if you remember that post that mm. you had created. No, but um, it sounds good. Then, I did good. I, <laughs> <laughs> you said so. <laughs> You said that you encourage DEI practitioners to understand more about people's unique experiences rather than seeing it from their own lens. You said it much better than I did. But when you said that, and I think it's really important because there's so many people, especially in the DEI space, that 
try to like their own personal experiences within their respective cultures, racial backgrounds, national origin background, religious backgrounds, their sexual orientation background, all of that, whatever that may be, however they identify, becomes the perspective for all matters, right? It becomes like, that's like, that's everything. Everything is just not that, right? Everybody, and so like, how do you, like when you wrote that, like what were your thoughts about like how you see a lot of DI practitioners that are in that in this space talk about issues that are, let's say, outside of them personally? So I can't speak to other people. I'm going to I'm going to stay on myself because I, I try to do that. So I'm going to tell you about two examples where I got some three examples, actually, where I got kind of an aha moment and, and had to take a step back. One, I talked about openly on LinkedIn and, and there was a lot of chat around this post at how I was using black indigenous. I was using the language indigenous. And I had someone reach out to me and say, have you ever been told by someone who's native? that they don't like being called indigenous. And I remember feeling shame around the fact that I did not know that until I, I you know, I sat with that. I took a step back and I, I and I'm just going to be frank here. It took me more than 24 hours because I think that that is important that we talk about our process around this, that nobody has this process that's perfect, that even ego can show up. And I had to take a step back and then come back to that person. First of all, that was a gift. Like that's really kind. And they did it like in my DMs. It wasn't out in the open. That was really kind of somebody to do for me. And so, and do for themselves. I'm sure it was less for me and more for themselves. And I thanked them for it and said, Can it, then from moving forward, I will say both native and indigenous every time I talk about it. And they said, thank you. Right. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think about an, another time when I made an assumption about a white man and he was neurodivergent and he had insights because of that, because of his of that identity. He had some insights and he also had done a lot of his own reading and work outside of that. I've had experiences. Uh, and one of the things I like to say in particular, that just because I'm a black woman does not mean I understand what it is to be a black woman who has a disability. And a black woman who has a disability who is trans, and a black woman who has a disability and trans who is over fifty. Do you understand what I mean? And so I think the more that we are, and 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 who is an immigrant to the United States, like all of that, and people are like, well, does that even exist? Absolutely, it exists. Those identities can absolutely exist in a person. And so what what I really work to do, and it, it is always a work in progress, is to one know my lane. And to be able to take a step back, but also always be open to open dialogue and conversation and let my goal be understanding in those conversations instead of trying to prove my knowledge in those moments. And then from that, what a wealth of of additional knowledge that I have that I can then bring out in a moment and then wait for somebody to return that to me and say, well, Actually, Kim, so the goal is to always learn, not just like through the books that's a part of it, but also from people. Because what if we are going to ask people to see us in my culture as not a monolith, I have to extend that to other groups as well. Thank you, Kim Crowder. I really appreciate you taking out the time today. Phenomenal. Enjoyed every aspect of it. You gave some phenomenal answers and I appreciate your time and all the work that you do. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today on the Workplace Justice Podcast. Love this episode? Leave us a review and tell us what you think about our show. If you haven't subscribed yet, 
Head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app to subscribe to our show so you'll never miss a new episode. Need help? Talk to an employment lawyer today. Visit our website at nisarlaw.com or call 212-600-9534 for your free case evaluation. See you in the next episode.